This episode features dramatizations of disease, hospitalization, and pandemic. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of Juwara. Today's episode combines elements from a number of Hindu and Puranic legends and stories for dramatic effect. Hello everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Join me on a trip around the world in search of the malevolent gods and beasts that represent rot, pestilence, and human frailty. This is Mythical Monsters, Monsters of Disease. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we meet a figure that appears across ancient Hindu texts, from the Atarva Veda to the Mahabharata and Puranas. Sometimes he manifests as a human-animal hybrid and sometimes a fire god. But his method of destruction always stays the same. He is a fever with a mysterious cause, deadly and impossible to predict. In short, he's a pandemic. Coming up, fever grips a city. Juwara is both an ancient Ayurvedic medical concept and a Hindu god. In the eyes of Ayurvedic practitioners, Juwara is the lord of all diseases, a fever that can affect all aspects of a person's existence, the body, mind, and senses. Juwara's symptoms include elevated body temperature, loss of appetite, excessive thirst, and body aches. The very young and very old are at particular risk, and the best ways to treat it are symptom management, hygiene maintenance, and minimizing environmental pollution. Juwara has many different origin stories within Hindu tradition, but a few elements stay the same. He's born from the sweat and tears, or anger and sorrow, of Shiva, sometimes called the destroyer of all. He can sicken men, animals, and gods. His appearance ranges from a man who is radiant like the fire god, to a human with a lion's face, to a small, fur-covered monster with three legs, three heads, six hands, and nine eyes. But if Juwara's appearance can feel random, its attacks are far from it. The Mahabharata, a sacred Hindu text, suggests that fair and just rulers had no need to fear him. But if a king abused his power, he was sure to have a fever sweep his land. The disease itself is difficult to treat, and it often takes victims in ways physicians do not understand, making the cause of the disease, poor leadership, all the more dangerous. But another Hindu text, the Arta Shastra, reminds us that all is not lost when Juara spreads. If a ruler aids their people through treatment and support, all will be well. Unfortunately, not every king is willing to do even that much.
There was much wailing in the city that summer. When the deaths began, Meha thought it was just a bit of bad luck, coincidences, until the pyres burned day and night and the sacred river was choked with ashes. That's when she knew it was Juara that had killed them. First the very young and very old, then everyone. The afflicted could not eat, but they were always thirsty. Their bodies ached so badly that one touch felt like the blows of a thousand. And above all was the fever, the heat that drove them to delirium. The people wondered what to do. They called to their king, the wise and noble Nahusha, to save them. Their nation was at peace. There were no wars to fight or conflicts to solve. Surely he had time for this. But his only emergence from his stone palace was to announce a search for a bride. She had to be perfect, he said. She would please him, and the city's suffering would end. It seemed absurd to Meha, but whenever she voiced her opinion, she was told it was above her station to do so. The Vaidyas, the doctors, told their patients to stay home to keep the fever from spreading. Meha knew it was what had to be done and locked her doors to the beauty of the streets, the bright colors and chains of marigolds, the painted elephants, but she was worried about more than missing color. She was a musician by trade, and she would not be paid to strum her vena alone in her room. Without weddings and festivals to serenade, she would have no food to eat. Her fears increased as she peered out her windows and saw that some didn't believe the doctors. They carried on with their lives. The heat and aches moved from person to person, and Juara did not abate. Day after day, the red and white city walls shook with wailing. They cried, Oh fever, listen to our prayers and spare us. Only now were the streets empty, emptier than Meha had ever seen them. This was why Meha moved in with Rahul. They'd been friends since they were children. He was equally unhappy with the state of things, being a chai seller by trade. Now he had nowhere to sell his tea, and they were going on seven days with no income and no food. Meha's stomach rumbled as she tried to console him. At least we have the chai to keep us healthy. The doctor said that ginger and turmeric would help. Rahul shook his head. We will use it up, and we won't be able to get more. No one is harvesting Meha. No one is cutting ginger or drying tea. Pass me the water, would you? Meha lifted the jug. It felt very light. How much water have you had today? Rahul squinted, trying to remember. Uh, I've been to the well twice. I'm sorry, I'll go get more. I've just been so thirsty. Meha stared at him, eyes widening. Unending thirst. She knew what that meant. She reached towards Rahul's forehead. Hot. Her stomach sank. You have it, Rahul. You have the fever. Rahul froze, panic filling his eyes. I... No, I can't. But if I... Oh God, if I do, you need to get out of here, Meha, right now. If there's any chance that we can keep you safe. 
Meha didn't let him finish. She wasn't afraid of death. She'd lived in a way that would make her reincarnation pleasant. But she couldn't imagine going through life without Rahul. Anyway, if he had it, she probably already had it too. She gathered her resolve and shook her head firmly. We need food if you're going to get better. I'm going out. Rahul protested, I'll not have you dying on my account. Meha shushed him and grasped his face in her hands. That is not up to me now. Then she removed her jangling jewelry, pulled her veil over her head, and started off into the night. Meha had gone only a few steps when she saw a pack of wolves. She pressed herself up against her building's outer wall, the tan clay cold on her back. She held her breath, praying that they would keep moving. They drew near. But thankfully, they passed, taking no notice of her. It was a strange sight, the wild animals padding down the cobbled street, like the jungle moving to reclaim the city. Meha waited until they were far down the road, then continued her search. The open-air market was dark and empty. It had been scavenged for food long ago. Only the luxury goods remained, glittering gold jewelry and darling dolls made from wood and sari fabric. Meha cursed quietly to herself. What good were riches to the dead? Then she heard something beneath her whispers. It was a burning, buzzing sound, halfway between a breath and a flame. Meha dove behind a figurine stall, covering her own mouth as she listened. A doll's painted eyes gazed at her, looking as terrified as she was. The sound grew closer, maybe 15 feet away now. Meha could feel sweat running down her brow, and she was shivering too. It felt like more than fear, but she didn't have time to think about fever now. A small figure was prowling through the marketplace. At first, she thought it was a child. Then it turned. It was the height of a child, but it had three heads, six hands, and nine red eyes searching the darkness. It strode forward slowly on its three spindly legs with an oddly steady gait, as if the city belonged to it. And it was heading towards her. With each eerie step, Meha's forehead got slicker. Her body ached more acutely. Her head pounded harder. Stifling a gasp, she realized, This was the fever. This creature was the fever. The Juara. She had heard the doctors say that the Juara was a person. She hadn't wanted to believe it. Yet here he was, just as the stories had said. The fever walking towards her. The air sizzled around Meha. The edges of her vision went fuzzy. She squinted, willing the world to come into focus. But when her eyes cleared and she could see again, her heart stopped. 
There was a little boy hiding in another stall. He was trying to conceal himself among a pile of red and gold fabric, but he was shivering too badly to keep still. His eyes pleaded with Meha. He looked even worse for wear than she was, near death. Perhaps because he was so young, or perhaps because he was nearer to the god. Juara's strange three-footed gait was carrying him along a zigzagged path, but he was heading closer to the child by the minute. Soon he was only a few steps away. The boy had to run. Every motion hurt, but Meha forced her limbs to move. She beckoned the child, mouthing her pleas. Come on, little one, you can do it. Come to me. The boy shook his head, whimpering. The Juara turned at the sound. All nine blood-red eyes focused on the boy. Meha gestured more insistently. The boy's lips turned blue. He looked so much like Rahul had when they were small. His brown eyes were soft, kind, and frightened. Meha silently pleaded with Lord Shiva, Please, O devourer of death, I bow to you in all supplication. Do not take him yet. But the boy only sank lower as the Juara's shadow crossed his. The monster didn't even need to see him to kill him. This was what the doctors had meant by walking death. It was only a matter of proximity. The boy's head lifted, and for a moment, Meha's heart lifted too. But then he looked this way and that, his eyes wild. It was the delirium, the last phase of the fever. He thrashed and moaned, doubled over in pain. Then he collapsed. Meha barely managed to stifle her cry of anguish before the Juara turned right to her. Coming up, Meha meets more than one monster. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. Meha was only a few feet from the Juara. She told herself that all she needed to do was get away. If she could escape the marketplace, she could go to the king. Perhaps one of his archers could slay the monster, and if he shot from a distance, he wouldn't get the fever. 
Then maybe when the creature died, all the sick would be saved, and she and Rahul could just go back to their lives. They could pretend that everything was back to normal. She knew it was far-fetched, but this was her last chance, and she had to try. Meha was crouched low to the ground, behind a box in the figurine stall. She tried to remember the quickest path to the palace. The Juara's shuffling footsteps came closer. Her heart pounded. As the Juara passed the body of the dead child, she edged around the corner of the box, hoping to avoid detection. But the Juara didn't need to see her to harm her. Pestilence leaked from his pores. The closer he got, the more her head ached. Sweat streamed into her eyes. She was less vulnerable than the boy had been, but she would die if she didn't run. She had to move now. She held her breath and pressed her veil against her nose, taking a deep breath through the fabric. Then she stood up and ran for the palace. She heard the Juara's steps speed up behind her as she darted between the buildings. But no one knew this city as well as her and Rahul. She had to survive for him. She dashed through her favorite shortcut, a narrow gap between buildings. She used to tease Rahul about being too big to fit. Maybe if she was lucky, Juara's many limbs couldn't squeeze through either. Soon, she burst out of the tight space into another plaza. Meha leaped over an abandoned cart and tumbled into the dirt. She used her momentum to roll to her feet and kept running. As the air filled her lungs and the muscles in her legs pumped firmly up and down, she was struck with wonder. The fever seemed to be gone. Perhaps it was just adrenaline, but perhaps the Juara's effect had been temporary. Perhaps its power only held when it was nearby. The thought gave her hope for herself and for her city. If they could get rid of the Juara, perhaps all the afflicted would heal. She ran faster. and practically threw her body against the massive wooden door of the palace. No one came. She knocked again, then she screamed, The Juara! The monster is here! You must do something! She yelled for what felt like hours. When her voice was growing hoarse, she saw a silhouette in a lit window far up above. It was King Nahusha himself. He leaned his head outside. My guards told me there was a beautiful beggar at the gates, but they've hardly done you justice. Meha froze mid-knock. Did you not hear what I said? The king placed his chin on his hands. I did, yes. Did you hear what I said? I would like you to be my wife. Meha couldn't believe her ears. Still, she brought herself to the ground in a bow of supplication. With all respect, Majesty, marriage is not on my mind. The city burns with plague, but it is a monster that harms us, not bad air. Surely one of your champions can end its reign of terror with a well-placed arrow. You must have monster killers in your ranks. The king crossed his arms. I do, but I do not believe you've seen any kind of monster. 
Meha swallowed her frustration. She wanted to shriek, to tell the king he had abandoned his people. But that would be the height of impropriety. She wouldn't get what she wanted that way. Majesty, I've been exposed to the beast, and yet you would have me as your wife? The king laughed. After all those days alone that my advisors insisted on, but don't worry, I'll make sure to put you in a room where I can admire you from afar. Shall I open the gates? Meha considered the offer for a moment. Maybe if she charmed the king enough, she could convince him to do something about the Juara. But Rahul didn't have any time to waste. I'm sorry, Majesty, I'll have to decline. She stood up and, as politely as she could, backed away. The king immediately started shouting after her, apparently shocked that she had refused his offer. But Meha knew what she had to do now, even if it terrified her. If the king wouldn't help her, she needed to kill the Juwara herself, or die trying. She approached a butcher shop, offered a prayer to Ganesha, and tried the door. It popped open with a quiet click. She slipped inside and searched the darkness for what she needed. Meha had been raised vegetarian, like Rahul and many others in her country, but she knew the king ate game meat and other delicacies. Such delicacies required a knife. Meha slid the long metal blade off the table. It wasn't a sword, much less a bow, but it was something. Meha adjusted her veil once again as she strode through the dark streets of her empty city. She heard the hissed whispers and stifled cries that had become the music of the fever. They echoed off the carved clay walls. She crept beneath the pointed arches and hid in the shadows of the tall pillars. She'd remembered when these places had been bustling with color and sound. She'd strolled to every festival with Rahul, with chains of fragrant jasmine wound around her dark hair. Now, all she smelled was staleness and death. Meha didn't know where to look for the Juara first. She knew now that when you were closer to him, you got sicker. But everyone was suffering everywhere. Her city was large. How could she know where he was hiding? She reached a split in the road and paused. Right or left? Meha turned her head in each direction. To her surprise, the air to the right was much warmer than to the left. Unnaturally so. Perhaps the Juara didn't only radiate fever, maybe it was heat, too. She followed that trail. Moans of pain emanated from boarded-up buildings, growing louder as she went. A few monkeys loped by her, heading in the opposite direction. That was a good sign. Animals knew to flee danger. She must be getting close. Eventually, Meha arrived at the easternmost square of the city. The Juara stood right in front of a shrine to Lord Shiva, the destroyer. It seemed fitting. He was turned away from her, still straight and tall, as if in prayer. He looked almost peaceful. If Meha had an opportunity, it would be now. 
Her body was growing warmer like it had at the marketplace, but she adjusted her grip on the knife and tiptoed forward. She knew she needed to be fast. If she could get the knife in quickly, maybe she wouldn't die before the Juara did. Her head pounded with every approaching step, and she felt like her skin was boiling, but she was within reach. She lifted her knife, and then she was hit by a burst of heat. She rolled and slid, landing painfully on her stomach. She forced herself to raise her head, fighting the pain with every breath. The Juara's nine red eyes blazed in the darkness. Why are you following me? She groaned as she tried to rise to her feet. I will end your reign in this city. The Juara laughed. There is no mind over matter with me, little one. Are you the king's champion? Meha didn't know how to answer that. Would a lie benefit her? Why do you ask? The Juara let out the driest of laughs. <laughs> Perhaps if I kill enough of you, he will finally come out. Meha was stunned. That was all it took? Does he know this is what you want? The Juara crossed his arms. I've been very clear with him. The sins of a tyrant king give birth to a hundred and one diseases. He may give up the throne at any time and save his people. Instead, he hides. Meha forced herself up onto her elbows. She tried to look like her whole body wasn't screaming from heat and pain. She had a solution now. He offered to let me into the palace. Could you follow? The Juara shook his head. He will separate you from the outside world. I fade over time. It is in my nature. Meha was struggling to understand the rules. You can't leave me and go to him? The Juara sighed. I can't travel through closed doors, hence why I appreciated your friend going to the well so often. Everybody had gone inside by then, and I was getting bored. Meha felt her cheeks getting hot. The casual way he talked about hurting Rahul made her blood boil on its own. She forced herself to focus. She needed a plan. If I can get you into Nahusha's room tonight, will you leave the city forever? You can do with him what you will, but release the rest of us. The Juara looked her up and down. How would you do that? Meha groaned. Drop my body temperature and I'll show you. The Juara thought for a moment, then said yes. But I will kill your friend if you fail. Then I will boil you alive. Meha nodded in agreement. Almost immediately, the air around her lightened. She was left with stinging nerves and a tight throat, but the pain dissipated. With a little bow to the beast beside her, she set off for the palace, the Juara ambling behind. Coming up, Meha and the Juara confront King Nahusha. Now back to the story. 
The Juara stood beside Meha as she looked up at the high palace walls. She turned to him. Is there any chance you can be less conspicuous? The Juara didn't answer. Instead, his black, furry visage began to melt. His third eyes blinked and shifted, merging into the other two. His frame stretched and his fur receded, revealing deep brown skin. His heads shook and then slid together into a single, very handsome face. Meha bit her lip. She'd been hoping for something small and pocketable like a mouse, but she had no other alternative. She coughed and took on an authoritative tone. You will say you're my brother, here to negotiate my marriage to the king. But you must also say that the matter must be settled immediately. That's the only way this will work. The Juara narrowed his eyes. I don't take orders from you. Heat slid across Meha's skin. Burn pustules rose on her forearms. She stifled a scream, then hissed through gritted teeth. Fine, fine, it's not an order. It's a proposition for the plan. The heat subsided. The Juara nodded, clearly congratulating himself on his mercy. Come then, sister, he said. Walking up to the gate himself, he knocked. A guard poked his head over the ramparts. Who goes there? Meha spoke first. Your future queen. My brother has come to negotiate my dowry. The guard swung his torch in their direction and shouted upwards. Meha heard a rushing of feet and weapons, and the Jawara gave her a look. That could be good or bad. Meha shushed him. Just wait. The doors in front of them opened, revealing a sandy courtyard. It looked empty, but someone shouted, step forward, from above. She and the Juara did so and immediately saw where the voice had come from. A row of archers waited high above them on the walls, bows drawn. The soldier smiled at them. He clearly thought he had all the cards. What offer do you have for his majesty? Meha opened her mouth, but the Juara waved his hand at her. He would do the talking. I will speak only to Nahusha eye to eye and man to man. She is my only sister, a great loss. The soldier scoffed. You do not dress like you're of noble blood. Meha paused. She hadn't expected this, not when Nahusha himself had greeted her last time. So she stepped in. Appearances deceive, sir. The soldier turned to leave. That's what beggars say. Meha felt the heat rising around her. The Juara was getting angry again. He hissed. Your plan isn't working. Should I leave to see Rahul? She hadn't expected the threat to give her an idea, but she raised her voice. We've traveled in disguise to escape the Juara, but your rudeness annoys me. Let's go, brother. She turned on her heel. Immediately, a voice echoed around the courtyard. 
I won't have you reject my hospitality. It will be the best rest you've ever had. Nahusha himself emerged from the guard tower high above. Until our marriage, of course. The king stalked along the battlements until he stood right above Meha and the Jawara. Meha glanced at the beast, willing him to kill the king right then and there, but he muttered to her, too far away. Meha swallowed and turned her best smile upwards. Yes, my king. Nahusha was already gesturing at his soldiers with a satisfied smirk. The gates clanged shut, locking them in. Meha could feel sweat dripping down her brow, her back, every inch of her skin. She wasn't sure now if it was her anger at this pompous coward or the Juara's anger that was causing it. Either way, she was more intent than ever to make this plan work, however painful the process. She held her head high. I will stay, my lord, happily, but even in these dire times, we must do things correctly. You will get no rest or joy from me until you come down here and negotiate for my hand. Nahusha laughed. Why would I negotiate when you're mine for the taking? I'm not a fool. Meha gritted her teeth. Propriety wouldn't work, apparently. She'd have to try another tactic, a more drastic one. Her words cut through the courtyard like a sizzling knife, fast and furious. I'm sorry, you're right. You're not a fool. You're an arrogant coward who abandoned his people. Nahusha's smile fell. You have made a grave mistake. He turned to the soldier by his side. Take them to the dungeon. The soldier was taken aback. Sir, I can't go into the courtyard. Nahusha's hands balled into fists. You will do as you're told or I will throw you from the battlements. Now go. The soldier didn't move. No, sir. They could be sick. Nahusha nodded his head vigorously. Yes, so afterwards you will isolate yourself to protect me. Now go. The soldier shrunk further and further into himself. I could be dead by then, sir. I won't do it. Nahusha looked to the other soldiers. Arrest him. But those soldiers didn't move either. Every one of them was sweating, clutching their weapons. Nahusha's voice got a little thinner, just the slightest shake. Follow your orders. He rushed at the offending soldier. The man cried out, no majesty, please. But Nahusha kept coming. In an instant, the young man grabbed the king and pushed. Nahusha tumbled into the courtyard. The soldier stood up above, mouth agape. Nahusha was already moaning from the fall, but then Meha saw his face. It was red and pulsing, burning from the inside. He screamed. The Juara smiled serenely at Meha as the king writhed, speaking calmly over the man's wails. You have done what you said you would, and I shall too. 
Go home, your tea cellar will be well. Meha's mouth opened. How do you know he's a tea seller? Something like sadness snuck into the Juara's smile, but only for a moment. I remember everyone I hurt, Meha. Like my creator, Shiva, I keep them in my mind. I'm not sorry for what I did. Empathy is not in my nature, but I remember. May you do the same. I'm certain I will see you soon. In a flash, he disappeared. Meha's body tingled with cold. Meha walked home as dawn rose. Reds, oranges, and purples bathed the buildings in color. For a moment, she imagined the city ready for Diwali. Candles, flowers, and sugary sweets everywhere. She turned the corner to her and Rahul's street. Rahul stood in the doorway. What did you do, Meha? One moment I could barely breathe, and now... Meha shrugged. I met a man named Juara. Rahul looked dazed at the thought. Like the god Juara? She placed her hand on his arm. Do one thing for me, all right? Rahul nodded. Of course, anything. Meha patted him gently. Don't go to the well anymore. I'll do it, not you. That day, Meha and Rahul talked and bickered and laughed, drinking tea until the sun rose and fell. For the first time in a long time, they felt joy. But they didn't see the six fur-covered hands pressed against their outer wall, listening, waiting for a chance to begin the plague again. In most stories, the Juara is a byproduct of Shiva's pain, born from either sweat or tears. Though Shiva doesn't intend to create him, the other gods expect him to balance out the damage that the Juara wreaks on the world. The Puranas say that when the Juara was first created, he attacked the gods and made them sick. Shiva pulled the fever from them, then divided the Juara's destructive power into several weaker aspects. Harmful algae blooms, headaches for elephants, skins shedding for snakes, hoof rot for cows, sore throats for horses, molting for peacocks, sore eye for cuckoos, coughs for parrots, lethargy for tigers, and a deadly fever for men. The Juara is dangerous to all of us. He represents the illnesses we struggle to understand and control, but he also demonstrates the fragility of life itself. We are making leaps and bounds every day in understanding and preventing disease, but as we innovate, it changes too. Still, the Juara is not necessarily a true malevolent figure within Hindu thought. He unleashes destruction to clear the way for new life. And he can even be seen as an example for human leaders. He accepts responsibility for his acts and reduces harm as best he can, even when it involves making difficult sacrifices. 
This is why the Juara's appearance is sometimes said to be tied to the behavior of kings. A cruel or distant ruler attracts the Juara, and if he also fails to manage it, the Juara will take him too. When that happens, the next leader will have to be better, lest the Juara come again. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another Monster of Disease. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jen Riche, with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.